and this is Dan Palmer welcoming you back to Making Permaculture Stronger 2022. Trust you're in a good space out there. Writing in the new year with style and feeling a clarity of focus about where your life force wants to be directed. This cycle Another hot summer's afternoon here in New Zealand. And I've been doing some writing lately and looking forward to sharing quite a lot of written content in the coming months. Also got some wonderful, a series of including this one, some wonderful podcasts to share with you. Including one with Carol Samford where we explore her new book titled Indirect Work which will be launched on about January 20th and I'll release that episode to coincide with the book's launch. Now today's chat was something out of the ordinary for me, something different. I met Millie on a, in a, in a pos- an online possibility management training space. I interviewed the founder of possibility management, Clinton Callahan. Um, can't remember what number episode it was, but I'll, I'll link to that chat in the show notes. Anyway, um, I met, met Millie in one of these spaces and got to know that she had a, she'd started a podcast, I think fairly recently, and she interviewed my dear friend James Andrews, and James is a long-term collaborator on Making Permaculture Stronger, and I'll link to that chat too, which I really enjoyed, and Millie asked me if I'd be up for a conversation, so she drove to visit me and we sat outside under a tree and... It was, it was cool exploring some of the stuff I'm passionate about with someone really new to permaculture uh, and realizing that um, we were able to, or it, was, it, it, was, it was exciting for me to tap into to my passion around living process and escaping the, the cage of mechanical thinking and seeing and for that to resonate with, with Millie um, and meet her in ways that made sense in her world and for her passions and interests. So enjoy the conversation. Thanks to Millie for permission to re-release this conversation. You can track down Millie's podcast on Spotify. It's called uh, is it Unplugged, um, Tapped and Plugged Out. Or hang on, I'll find it. Um, Unplugged, Tapped In. So if you looked up, I'll link to it on the show notes, but if you look up Unplugged, Tapped In, you can track it down. And um, aside from that, if, if you're interested in supporting and beyond supporting, supporting me to ramp up this project, head on over to makingpermaculturestronger.net slash support or patreon.com slash makingpermaculturestronger. Massively appreciate your input. I'm really striving to free up, uh, to, to make energy and time available. There's, there's a, there's a, I've got a lot of energy for this. There's a... I want to go a long distance in a fairly short time in the coming um, coming months. Um, thanks for all of you that are following along, and thanks very much for your comments recently, Laura, Jason, others. It's uh, it's a it's a thrill to to really feel that sense of uh, being on on this journey of exploration together. I'm looking forward to what we co-create throughout the year, and I'll catch you in the next episode. This is Dan Palmer got the chance to sit out under a walnut tree 
on his parents' property in Whakatane and ask him some of the burning questions inside me. And he answers them with such clarity. He starts off speaking about his own podcasts. And I hope you enjoy. This one's called Making Permaculture Stronger. Yeah. Yeah. And that one's been going for long. Yeah, that's been going for three years or something. Three or four years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. How, how often do you put out an episode? Varies a lot. Yeah. Sometimes I get caught up on other things and it's three months. Yeah. At the moment it's two weeks. Yeah. But I, I'm a, I'm, I let it breathe, you know. Right now I've got a, a quite a lot of energy for it. Yeah. And, and got lots of great conversations happening. And I have like, I think two or three up up my sleeve, which is a nice feeling, you know. I've yeah. got a stash. But I can just, just let them go as I, as I want rather than having to chase, chase the next guest. Yeah. Mm. How do you find people? How do I like, actually track them down? Yeah, like, how, yeah. How do you find them, and how do you know who you want to talk to? Yeah, well, it's it's non-random. The the project is a series of inquiries, so like leaning into certain questions. And so, what tends to happen is someone comes up on my radar, who um, seems to have something to contribute to the overall movement, yeah. and so I'll ask them. And they tend to say yes, and where we go. And then there's also people come back. So there's some people have been on three times, four times, oh, yeah. which allows us to go deeper, or then to bring. Some people just have so much value to offer. Yeah. It's, it's nice to you know you get a millionth of, of what they are and what they have to bring in one conversation. So yeah, some of them I get back is pretty much as much as they'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You find I find that the more I talk to people, the more like other lines of inquiry open up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's and that's a that's a thing on this project because I'm striving to keep it focused and um, and progress certain questions, but it's so hard not to explore interesting side paths. And I've spent like two years in the process of kind of looking at a doorway and getting ready to step through it. It felt like, it felt like, you know, next week I was going to step through it. That was two years ago. There's just so many interesting things to explore, even standing, looking at the doorway. Mm. What is the doorway? The doorway is, well, you, well, you could, you could, you could talk about it in terms of, I'm not saying it's anything to do with spiritual matters of enlightenment and liberation, but for some reason it just occurred to me that I heard a Hindu, um, I don't want to mean sub, guru or whatever, a teacher, um, years ago was asked what the difference between liberation and enlightenment was, and his answer was around, one is about, one. they're, this, they're two words for the same thing, one focuses on what you're getting away from, and one focuses on what you're heading toward. 
So that's the analogy with what I'm talking about, and that um, this doorway, I, I can talk about it in terms of what you're getting away from, like what it takes you away from, and what it takes you to. Okay. Does that make sense? So that's about the room that you're leaving and yeah, you're yeah. walking into. So the room I'm leaving, or the, the, it's more like a, I see it as like a cage. So I'm standing inside a cage looking at a door. Mm. And a, a lot of, <laughs> it's quite funny to realise that a lot of the, what I've been really interested in lately is trying to figure out whether the door's open or closed. And whether it's opening or closing. It's actually, I know it's not opening. It's either almost closed or closed and then secondly whether it's locked and the cage is you could think of it as the machine you could describe it as the machine so the machine the machine mind the machine mentality the machine model of reality which i've been in awe of for a while now in terms of how deeply it infuses our entire ways of being and seeing and thinking and talking <coughs> far far deeper than what most of us realize and how for me how limiting and, and scary our unconscious attachment to it is to the point where we from my in my opinion we 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 tend not to realize we're in a cage yeah so that's that's a big part of the reason it's taken two year, two years is is to explore ways of making the making the door visible. Making the door visible. Yeah. So is it, and to make the door visible, you've got to make the cage or the container visible. You know, first it's like, hey, guess what? We're in a cage. Oh wow, hadn't noticed that before. But now you now you mention it, it's kind of obvious. <laughs> or, big bars. And yeah, or shit. just like, we're what? Yeah, yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> crazy. And a lot of, a lot of the time, I ask that question to myself. Well, I'm, I feel less and less crazy as I go along, and I'm finding more and more kinship with other, um, other expeditionaries that have not only identified the door, but I get the sense that, um, well, the folks that excite me the most have stepped through it, and they've, they've had adventures on the other side, and they've come back to share. Well, they're standing with their foot in the doorway, like yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it is a, it's a really useful metaphor for me, the whole thing. Partially in terms of where's my work, you know, what's my role, because you can, you can spend your life inside the cage, oblivious to your inner cage, which that's where I see most modern humans hanging out, and a lot of me in a lot of my waking hours. Then you can become aware of the cage and the door, and you can spend a whole lifetime pointing to the door, saying, hey, guess what, we're in a cage, there's a door, um, which means you spend your life in the cage. Or you can step out of the cage. It's pretty lonely out there. There's not so many people hanging outside of the cage anymore. <clears throat> and you can go on these amazing adventures, you know, and feel unprecedented um, levels of aliveness and discovery and excitement and whatnot. Um, but you're aware the door's there and the cage is there and there's, um, there's a lot of folk, a lot of folk in there. And the fact that most modern humans in my opinion are inside this cage as I said including me it's not about people you know it's not like I'm 
feel like I've, I've noticed the door and I've spent, I've taken some small excursions outside and yet um, my, fault, um, my default place is still inside the cage. You know, it's, it's just normal. Yeah. Or there's the bridge, so you can hang out inside, oblivious or otherwise. You can hang out outside um, where you just seem like a crazy person to most others and yet you can be having the time of your life. Or you can decide that you're a you're a bridge, you know, so you're moving back and forward across the door. Yeah. So it's been a lot of the two years. Is <laughs> these questions, yeah. which are very, they're very real for me, you know, very serious um, questions. And, and what is at stake for me is the life and the wholeness and the beauty of, of Earth. Yeah. And, the, and quite literally the future of humanity. So it's, it's, it's philosophical and it's intensely practical. Yeah, because I see that it's, there's this um, aspect of it rooted in permaculture and I wondered if you could say what permaculture actually is uh -huh. and why you feel... Do you feel that it goes and closely alongside moving from the cage that... or this machine way of being into a more... Yeah. Or is it on the other side of the door? No, yeah, that, that's been a shocking discovery for me. As you were speaking, I realised for the first time, I, I could describe the way I see it, and I will come back to permaculture. Yeah, <laughs> But the way I see it in terms of this metaphor is that um, a lot of what permaculture has become is a fake door out of a fake cage, both of which are inside the cage I'm interested in. So for a lot of people, what permaculture represents is an escape from a cage and moving through a doorway into a different space. And yet from where I stand, th that's all kind of a game being played inside the larger cage. So to me, permaculture, unfortunately, by and large, with some beautiful exceptions, has become um, a different flavor of the same thing. Yeah. Like using the same machine to do different things. Yeah, deeply unconsciously committed to the machine worldview in a mechanistic way of seeing what the universe is and how it works and, and, and how how we live, how we ought to live, how we go about creating things. Because the, the hard, like extremely hard work of learning to see and learn more, like peel back the layers of assumptions behind the way we see and act, um, if, if that work's not done, you will end up in the, the mainstream rut. And right now that mainstream rut is a mechanical worldview. Yeah. And so um, I think, yeah, to me, that's a big part of what making permaculture stronger is about, is, is pointing to this situation. So in my opinion, permaculture is really failing to live up to its beautiful potential because it's running around in circles inside this cage of a mechanistic worldview. Yeah. When if anywhere in the world, in terms of, movements with traction um, and certainly the sense people feel when they're first exposed to it is that it seems to be a door out of the real cage and then there's this horrible disillusionment so many people feel and so many of them leave permaculture for this reason when the penny drops that oh no it was a fake door what did it stem from permaculture movement? yeah like what was it what is its co or like yeah yeah i liked i liked uh, the question i've been exploring 
is what is its radical originating impulse. Yes. Like what's the seed yeah. from which permaculture germinated? And, and part of it, a very significant part of it, was a conversation between two men, two white men, um, to be clear, yeah. in, in the 1970s in Tasmania, Australia, where one of the men who was about 18 or 19 years old was saying to the other guy, um, hey, what, I, need to, I need to figure out what I'm going to study next year, what I'm going to do my master's thesis in this, this program I'm studying. Can't, can't remember the, the degree or whatever. Um, or even it was a degree of diploma. Anyway, he was figure, figuring that out. And his, his passion and interest was he'd realised that there was a big empty blank space in the place where three things overlapped. Agriculture, modern agriculture, um, ecology, and landscape design or landscape architecture. So these are three, these are three different things, disciplines, programs, practices. Yeah. And he realised, why, why don't they overlap? You know, why is why is not why is why is modern agriculture why does it have nothing to do with ecology? Yeah. And then even if we can find uh, some questions in between where those two are, yeah. and there was already some stuff happening in there. There's this movement called agroecology. Then where's design? You know why why are we spending all this effort designing beautiful backyards for city dwellers and and whatnot? Why not, why are we not bringing a design um, mind? Yeah. To, to the question of what would an agricultural ecology or an ecological agriculture um, look like. So he was very interested in that, that overlap, which is a really, still, to me, a really radically original and exciting question. And then the other guy, um, Bill, Bill Mollison, was the older guy, younger guy was David Hongren. Bill Mollison said, yeah, well, what about this? He, he spoke like this. What about this for an idea? Um, why don't you look into why does modern agriculture all use annual plants? And right now you and I are sitting about four metres from a monoculture of corn, an annual plant, which is um, definitive of, of modern monoculture, monocultural agriculture. High input, single crop, everything else is killed. The soil is destroyed in the process. Um, anyway, he said, why don't you explore why there isn't more perennial plants, more plants that live more than one year in our agricultural systems. Mm. And for David, that sat within that overlap. You know, why, what would it mean to design more, a greater ratio of perennial plants into our agricultural systems, which would be informed by how the rest of the planetary ecology works, um, yeah. where, where ecosystems around the planet tend to have a large proportion of perennial plants, you know, plants that continue to photosynthesize and harvest nutrients from the earth and build topsoil when only a relatively small proportion, maybe 20-30%, whatever it is, are annuals which often come in after disturbance like band-aids to patch up the earth until trees and whatnot can get established again. So, so that, that conversation was close to the seed of the permaculture. Beginnings. Beginning, yeah. But, and, and, and David Homeran, the younger of the two, who's a close friend and colleague of mine, he describes that as the seed of the permaculture concept, that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Immediately I see a piece missing, which is um, humans being alive. 
Yeah, do you want to say more about that? Well, those three components feel very environment orientated, uh -huh. externally focused. Yes. Yeah. What do we do to the environment so we can survive? But then it feels like there's a component of like human lifespan, the the human experience, like. Um, emotional connections and our internal experience of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 fair, fair comment. Was, that wasn't the, wasn't the focus. And over the years, 40 or 40 plus years since then, um, others have gone into these nooks and crannies and often the way they do it, has the unfortunate consequences, in my opinion, of fragmenting permaculture. So there's human permaculture, there's um, social permaculture, financial permaculture. Oh, true. Um, does it, did I say human? Yeah, human yeah. permaculture. There's a recent book on that title, which is seeking to to bring the bring what permaculture's become into these different spaces. Yeah. It did broaden out pretty quick to to um, ask not only what what would an ecological agriculture look like or what it mean to consciously design such a thing, but what would a ecological culture look like? Yeah, hmm. yeah. And, and that in turn includes everything in inner outer. And what would it feel like for a human walking through that kind of a world? Yeah, yeah, and 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 so much of what continues to light people up when they initially exposed to permaculture is that sense of what would it be like to walk, walk through a world that was consciously designed in harmony with the rest of life or, or you know, where, where the systems from which we derive what we need to survive um, are, are happening in a way that is conducive to the health of the whole and not literally destroying the substrate. Yeah, that we depend upon. and I think there's still something there because I, when as soon as I walked in here to your property, yeah. this place, there's just a different feel, mm. and there is something that just makes me smile, and it's like, oh, it kind of works. Like this yeah, place yeah. works. Yeah, and yeah, totally. Yeah, like the, there's there's a sense of life happening as it wants to happen yeah 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 well it's really interesting that to me that you should mention exactly what you mentioned in that a huge part of my journey you know how i talked about those those expeditionaries who i believe have been outside the door and i'm talking about people in recent times yeah like most hu most humans this was a nonsense conversation until until um, the rise of the, the machine and the industrial revolution and and all that in the last several hundred years um, this this there's no com this conversation didn't happen because there was no cage you know, there was no the, the trap wasn't there or it was it was at such a germinal early stage that it was a non-issue and then that's shifted and and one of the expeditionaries who I've taken enormous inspiration from is a radical architect um, and writer and thinker and doer etc called Christopher Alexander oh, yeah. and 
he's he's really helped me in a way realize that lack you're talking about in permaculture in the sense that um, spaces and places can be more or less alive yeah. which is and it's it's not in a intellectually intellectual checklist way but in the felt way I'm, I'm a human being and as i like you said as you walked into this place there's just you don't know exactly what it was but you just had a sense that there's something there's some life here there's something working here yeah. and, and christopher alexander spent his life trying to understand what it was about a place or a space or a building mm. that had that impact on people so that he could then consciously support processes that generated those spaces and for him the biggest well, I, I, I don't know, the biggest a, a fundamental issue humans are facing is that we are not only um, we're not only not trying to make spaces whole and beautiful alive anymore we're unconsciously doing the opposite we're making them dead and alienating and ugly and life denying and walking around in those places and living in them yeah wondering and why we feeling totally well so yeah. shit and yeah. so in a way hated by our environments and, yeah. and not held at all and one of his arguments was that it doesn't matter how much inner development you do how much meditation or healing past traumas or whatever it is mm. um if the environment you exist within or the space the place places you exist within are, are themselves riddled with trauma and and broken and dead and life denying then um you know it's that's this is a big deal and so that inner and outer development need to proceed together yeah yeah it's interesting you say that because i've noticed for me um yeah i'd love to hear you talk more about that link between our inner world uh-huh developing with our outside world and if you feel like there's a, if it should start on the inside or it should start on the outside because uh-huh. I've noticed in me just over the last few months through doing a lot of um, emotional healing myself uh-huh. that I've started to take more care of my outside environment looking after my cleaning up the place like looking uh-huh. after the plants more uh-huh. and it seems like a natural progression to go from space of feeling more tidy on the inside to want to make my outside world feel tidier. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> Bill Mollison, the, one of the characters involved in the um, origin of what we call permaculture today, which has a lot of resonance with age-old ways of being human. He 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 stressed the importance of get. He said, "Say get your get your garden in order first. <laughs> you know, and and he would even say get get a square meter of ground outside your kitchen door. Get that in order, mm. and then expand from there. Like like the physical. Like physically, yeah. <laughs> but you then you can bring that in and say, well, get your own internal stuff sorted out first. Just one square centimetre of your own yeah, yeah, your internal own, chaos. Your own psyche, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, one, one place this takes me directly, and was, which is a, uh, it's been a huge adult lifelong passion of mine, is realising that to me a core part of the cage we started with, the mechanistic worldview, 
is fragmentation, is the idea that the world is a pile of separate, separated fragments or silos, and that to do any kind of healing or, I mean, in, in the mechanistic paradigm, you, you would, whether or not you call it healing, what you mean is fixing. Mm. <laughs> um, that that what, what we need to do is we need to bring together these separated fragments and, and join them together. And what you were talking about, to me, um, is, an, is an example of that. And the, and the way we frame things, the questions we ask, often presuppose these, this brokenness. So, so often you know, people say, well, do you start with inner work or outer work? You know, which, which, the assumption behind that is that you need to start with one or the other because they're separate things. Okay, yeah, I And part of what I loved about Christopher Alexander's work, love, still alive, um, and a lot of lot of the work I've done in other spaces in psychology and philosophy is is realizing that this is just a common it's an aspect of the cage a trap that we will choose two things that feel different and argue about which one's more important and then I mean sometimes one will try and deny the existence of the other and then if both are strong enough they'll acknowledge each other's existence but get in a kind of a fight this, you can see this pattern in any discipline you like I mean you can see it in the newspaper. Um, or any yeah, news website really at the moment. Yeah. But realising that this really exciting possibility that you can dive deeper beneath the separation and you can work from that place where, where authentic healing can happen and wholeness can be nourished because you're not trying to join so-called broken parts. You're dealing with life. And, and um, like, I mean, there's so many examples of these kinds of splits, like the split between function and beauty is a big one, or theory and practice, person and world, subject and object, organism and environment. In, in all these cases, I, I, I'm, I'm excited, in my little baby steps outside the cage, which I'll, I'm sure I'll find out is there's layers and layers of cages, <laughs> um, but it's possible to go beneath those and work in a way that's so alive and so whole that it um, it's it like like sometimes I ask people I work with we look at a tree and I say tell me is the tree functional or beautiful and people get it pretty fast it's like what it's a nonsense question it's a ridiculous question the process that generated the tree simultaneously generated something incredibly functional and incredibly beautiful but it wasn't like it had to do a bit of function and then a bit of beauty a bit of fun, you know it, it wasn't a, a fragmented process and so God, bringing it all back to the inner and outer thing, I, I feel like it's the same thing. You know, that, that we're talking about aspects of a, an undivided whole, and the whole thing has to grow and um, develop together. So every, every step you take in terms of inner work, by your experience, immediately shifts. It, it, it ripples into and shifts the, what we call the outside world, and, um, and, and vice versa. And I'm interested in processes where, like, we're doing both at once simultaneously, if that makes sense. Which to me is new. It's new territory. It's really, really cool. Yeah. What are some of your experiment or experiences that you've felt completely outside of your cage? Or baby steps outside of your cage? Yeah, baby steps. Initially a toe or two. Um, well, I've, I've, I've been really interested. I mean, my, my sense is that a lot of humans spend a lot of time outside the cage and usually those humans 
um, are themselves existing in silos and often they're delegated or relegated to the domain of art and music, um, that, that kind of thing. You know, when, when you engage with a really deeply beautiful piece of music or art or sculpture or whatever it is, um, it's, it's often, these, these things are true of it, you know, it's, it's come from a deep place and it has life. And it, and it wasn't generated by a mechanical process. Um, and yet, there's often all the self-consciousness of how that happened. You know, I, I, know, I personally know incredible creators and artists, and when you ask them, how do, how do you do this? How do you create such amazing stuff? They'll say things to you that make sense for them, but there's no way I can get from what they said to me be able to create anything that has anything like that kind of life, you know what I mean? And so what, one of my passionate interests is how do we make this stuff communicable and, re and replicable and rigorous so that we can talk about processes that are alive and can create life and wholeness and beauty and, and inquire into them, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a healthy scientific sense. And so I've been doing experiments um, in my own life and with a lot of people I've worked with over the last five or six years. Mm. And so shall I tell you about one of those? Yeah, please. So one... One that comes to mind is um, I worked with a family of four, uh, not a family, two families, so four adults, two kids. So two of the adults um, had two kids and the other two didn't. Um, and the two women were sisters um, and they wanted to live together, so they bought this property together and they invited me to, to support their journey. In developing the land and this was one of my first explicit experiments in what I call living design process so to me most of the processes we use to design and create things are dead relatively dead which means that the outcomes are relatively dead which to me is kind of quite obvious that as of a process so of the outcome um, Anyway, we, we did this experiment, and so we worked in a different way. And they were expecting a more conventional approach, which to me is dead and fragmented and mechanical, which is, I'm the expert, I come in, they tell me what they want, I look at their land, I give them a master plan or a blueprint, and they pay me money for that, and then they impose my vision of the rest of their lives on this property, on themselves in the property. Yeah. Which is, a, to me, is a fundamentally broken approach, and is very typical of the cage of mechanical thinking and so I, I I supported them to not do that and and when when we would fall back into the rut of doing that to climb out again and so did they like from the start did they know that this was the way that you were going to go about it and this was... no no they they had they had varying expectations I remember the first session quite clearly because the two women, um, they they had a pretty clear idea that, okay, yeah, the guys have hired this guy, Dan Palmer, he's a permaculture expert, he's going to come in and tell us what to do, mm. and and he wants us to be at the first session just so we can meet him, and then then we'll be done and we'll, we'll, we'll exit the process, yeah. and then we'll find out later what we're going to be doing. And so for them it was a... It was a really powerful experience of realizing that, oh, wow. Oh, and, and also the expectation was this is going to have nothing to do with our interest, which is um, they're, into, they're very spiritual and emotional and 
intuitive um, and they work together in that, that way and they, they assumed that that would have nothing to do with this process, that it would be intellectual and rational and linear and yeah, in, in a sense mask, a masculine process without any need or desire for more feminine qualities. Um, and they found it pretty quick that wasn't the case. And so there was a deep, um, I don't know, yeah, they talk about later how they would just, they just had these massive smiles looking at each other, oh my God, you know, this is, this guy actually wants to hear what's going on in our hearts. And he wants, he's, we're already doing a guided meditation 10 minutes in, like, what the hell, you know? And he's, and he's got, the other guys doing a guided meditation. They they would never. They're like guided meditation, you know. <laughs> and um, and and wow, we we are being not given lip service in terms of who we are and what we might, who we what we want to bring, but we're being invited wholeheartedly into the process, oh, which is which is just beautiful. And similarly with with the guys, with all of them, you know, the, the point of this is not for you to outsource your lives to me as the expert. That's and I'm. I, I don't do that anymore, you know. I'm taking a stand for a different way of, of, of being and working. And I'm going to be, if, if we choose to work together, I'm going to be mentoring or supporting you or educating and resourcing you to take control of your own lives, you know, and make your own decisions and to hold a, a living process which is emotional and rational and theoretical and practical and you know, goes deeper than these splits we're talking about and involves your inner selves and your, your outer world simultaneously. And then we did that, and the outcomes are just really, be are really beautiful and transformational in all directions. Yeah. And not not in a, you know, like with all the with plenty of stuff ups and um, impurities and all that. Um, but it, it 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 got to a a point where people can visit that property and they feel in their body this wow, there's something going on here. There's there's an organic wholeness to this. And naturally, over time, the, the the folk have taken ownership of the process and they've used it in re renovating their houses and making career decisions. And did it feel like it had no end? Yeah, well, it it, it is. Because I was going to ask yeah. you like how long that process was, but maybe that question doesn't. Yeah, it's endless, work. and yet my my participation is not endless because my job, as I construe it, is to is to support them to in the germination and nourishing the early growth of a different way of being alive with the land and and whatnot and develop in the development process mm. so that I can leave, you know, I can I can help them get started and then I can step away and then come back, you know, when things fall over and step away or whatever. And at the, at the point where I'm not um, I don't need to be there anymore and the process has got its own integrity in life. Then I can um, I become a friend who drops in just to enjoy the journey, you know. Oh my god! I can really see how this stands completely separate from how the mainstream goes about building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm so I'm writing a book about it. And it's a, it really feels like it's a big part of what my life's work is about is to is to bring the theory and practice of this stuff alive. For people that are interested, I've realised that I'm, I'm interested in working with people that can see there's a door and are interested in stepping outside the door. Yeah. My life's work is not to try and convince people there's a door. <laughs> you know? no. I've, I've, I did try that for a while and it's just not, it's not my work. 
and, and, and I'm so excited that so many people know there's a door, can see a door. So, some, some have already taken steps outside and to, to partner up and go on expeditions. And it's so, like, so much of permaculture is still not there, you know? It's, is it like out in the world? No, no, it's, it's, it's not. It, it, it defaults back to processes that are mechanical and aren't alive and where permaculture designers are the expert and their job is to give you a master plan that predetermines what's going to happen and all these things that fly in the face of how the rest of life works. So, so much of how permaculture is rolled out in practice is actually a big fuck you to the rest of life, which to me, I feel angry about, you know, because it's such a horrible, unfortunate contradiction um, to what I see as permaculture's potential in the world. So that, that's been a lot of what that particular podcast has been about. Yeah, just to hold space for a conversation saying, you know, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of questions. So what sort of people come and talk on that podcast? Are they people that are actively engaged in building permaculture spaces or are they people doing completely different work? It's a mix. It's, I hadn't thought about this way before. Often it's people that I, I sense have stepped outside the door of the cage and have some sharings for us. Okay. A, a lot, so some of them aren't that directly associated with permaculture. A lot of them tend to have some even indirect connection or were into it in the past. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of practicing permaculture designers and also people that are getting into permaculture design but the center of gravity of the podcast is moving to what the next podcast will be about which is not about making anything stronger it's not about making permaculture stronger Mm. it's about um, which still has an energy of getting away from what something undesirable or something I, I don't like so much shifting to like you're just heading directly toward life you know what does that look like <laughs> yeah. let's just cut cut to the chase and, and that's that's about so much more than permaculture you know it applies to it's exploring the healthy dynamics of a living process for for anyone that creates anything anywhere anytime so it applies to all design disciplines all industries all everything when you make a dress or a cake or a song or a day it's very, very um, broad in its application, but also wanting to get it really specific and rigorous and replicable and all that. Yeah. The cage. Um construct that you talk about to you does it feel that it arose from industrialization um or do you think it's something that is yeah that human mind is born into a cage no matter what the context no not at all not at all so these days the human mind and body is born into a cage and so we assimilate the cage and it becomes part of who we are which makes it incredibly hard to as we've said realize there is a cage and get get the hell out of it Um, but for the vast majority of humans tenure on the planet as as part of earth 
the cage wasn't there, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. You know, any, any indigenous people or, or, or way of being or way of, way of life. I mean, the word indigenous is not a bad contrast with the, with the machine view. Anyway, I feel like the Industrial Revolution was a way of mainstreaming the machine worldview in a way and, and making it almost unavoidable in everyday life. And yet the, we're, we're at a, a key place it started was with the likes of um, Galileo and Kepler who started to, with the advent of very early machines like wind-up toys and hydraulically operated um, sculptures and stuff um, it became possible to use those as a metaphor for interpreting other things and so one of, one of the places where it really took a big leap the, the cage really started to firm itself up was was effectively saying let's pretend that the world of the, the, the stars and the planets are like a giant machine yeah. and and uh, understand it as a giant machine um, which is a break from the previous more indigenous views that all peoples had that the, the, the universe is alive and so we mechanized the stars and the planets um, and then um, Descartes is often brought up as a French philosopher who then took that to the to, to animals and humans and started to so let's let's pretend or assume that animals and humans are also machines, basically dead machines, and humans have this separate thing, um, and try to explore that. So we mechanized the, the planets and the stars, astronomy, and then we mechanized humans, and um, simultaneously machine technology was advancing, and steam engines and petrol engines, and so on and so forth, right through to mobile phones and screens and all that have become part of our experiential lived reality that so so the experiential lived reality that most of us well a huge huge number of us spend most of our day more engaged with machines than living organisms that's that's grown hand in hand with the machine mind and way of thinking yeah over hundreds and hundreds of years so it's it's deep and difficult to see and unpack. I'm, I'm just I'm working on that at the moment and doing some writing about it so I think it has a lot of relevance to what is going on in the world. I think it does too. Yeah. Separateness, that binary thinking. Fix this. I see sometimes I work in um, the operating theatres with um, people getting their bones fixed mm -hmm. and sometimes there's just a moment where I become terrified of what these experts, these surgeons are doing to the person mm. because they're so focused, hyper focused on this joint, this tiny joint inside the person mm. and that it scares me that I feel that there's a wider thing going on that's not been acknowledged. And I, yeah, I don't have a huge amount of words for what mm. that feeling is, but it's sudden. It just hits me sometimes. It's like, hey, what? Like, 
these these are the experts fixing this part of this person, but there's yeah, yeah, yeah. My wife's yeah. Um, interested in healing modalities, which have had her studying physiology and um, how the human body works. And this discussion is showing up everywhere, and certainly in that domain. That so much of what medical students learn is a, me is a mechanical approach. It's a mechanical approach. The body's yeah. a machine, more or less. You know. Hearts a pump, and you know, so on. It's just, it's just mechanical metaphors and understandings the whole way. Yeah. And there are there are these beautiful sparklings of folks exploring what it means to get out of the cage and in all these different disciplines yeah. simultaneously, which really excites me. It yeah. excites me to feel that I can be part of that amazing conversation because otherwise I'd probably go crazy. Probably. You know, I mean, I'll, I kind of am going crazy anyway, but that helps slow it down. <laughs> you rather going crazy in, in, in better spaces. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, it, the, this sort of conversation really excites me because I sense that the um, parts of um, the world that don't, um, and the systems that are so entrenched in us mm. and that don't work, I can't just get angry at the system and say it's all fucked up you're like this is ridiculous like you're it's your problem you're wrong yeah it, it, i feel that that doesn't work and it makes me excited to hear you talk because it feels that you're dropping deeper into building system that might serve better yeah yeah yeah, it makes it, it, it's a very serviceable answer to that question of what what the hell do you do with your life force? Yeah. You know, it feels relevant to, to me. Yeah. Was there a shift two years ago for you? Because I noticed you said that your podcast took the change a couple of years ago. Was it was a great. Well, there was a, there was a great. There was a gradual shift. One one thing that changed in my life was it was about two years ago that I met Carol Sanford, yeah. who who like Christopher Alexander has has become an incredibly significant um, resource and inspiration to my work, and has given me a lot of frameworks and um, processes and things to. That have been massively served me and helped me see things more clearly. So it was, it was gradual, but as I engaged with Carol's work, initially by getting her on my podcast. Is um, she, where's she from? She's in Seattle. Oh, yeah. Pretty sure in the States. She's 80 years old. Yeah? And she's, yeah, incredibly. She has some um, North American Indian um, ancestry, not, you know, not entirely a quarter or something. And, and um, so she learned a lot from her, her grandfather, but is also you know, went to university. She's just she's an incredibly profound, deep, sharp thinker, and she's she's a student of regeneration, you could say. And she's helped me understand what regeneration means and how relevant it is to my work. And in a sense, that what my work has been and is is I'm interested in the regeneration of permaculture. 
and she's got a lot of clarity around the, the depth and pervasiveness of the mechanical worldview and how it works. And I interviewed her last week actually again for the fourth time and she um, one of her quotes was fragmentation is the original sin of mechanistic thinking. We were exploring that. But she's been yeah just oh my gosh so so helpful in in helping me feel less crazy and help because so so much of my work I've realized is that I I get a, a sense of something like it's an energetic whisper or just um, taste sort of thing and I know in my heart there's something there and yet I can't explain it to my more intellectually um, centered friends who want the logic and you know the data you know I just, I just can't do it yet and yet I've learned to trust that sense and doubt myself less and then like dive into that space and then gradually by gradually something emerges it's something that's clear enough to hold and do experiments on and then eventually I can say this is you know here's an actual example yeah but a lot of my interest is that early stage and, and Carol's been to a lot of those spaces and given me these enormously powerful ways of understanding the process and understanding that it's part of my thing and my work. So that happened about two years ago. So uh, that has literally transformed my, my my life and my livelihood and my way of understanding who I am and what I'm here to do. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that before, but it, it's the case. Yeah. Thanks, Carol. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Carol. Eighty years old. Oh my God, eighty She's years old, and and still today, she runs these change development communities online. And part of the proceedings is that someone will get in the hot seat in what she calls a fishbowl, yeah. and she'll say, "What would you like to work on today?" And they'll talk about some aspect of their work in permaculture or their organisation, or it could be anything where they're trying to have some sort of regenerative impact. Yeah. Um, and in real time she will take them into a kind of an intellectual liquid state. She'll, she'll, she'll get them to share with her how they're framing the whole situation, what they're thinking of doing, and she'll ask questions using every, walking, the talk, walking her talk to dissolve these people's premises and kind of everything they thought they knew about how they're approaching it until they're just, they're in free fall. They don't know which way is up anymore. It's really intense and exciting and um, and then she'll support them to do their work of, and she calls it resourcing, returning people to themselves as a source um, to, to, to grow, to regenerate their approach where they always seem to come out empowered and smiling and, and it's, it's, it's really alive, you know, and very, very exciting. And I've realized that's something I have dabbled in and, and aspire to become a resource to people, which is about... Um, yeah, look, like supporting supporting the emergence of something from the situation rather than being the person that imposes it from outside. Yeah. So like she's got all these really contrarian premises. Like I'll, she she strives not to answer a question with an answer, but to respond with a question that helps the, the initial questioner understand their question more deeply. You know. To understand what might be behind the question or under it. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you. I'll give you a question that helps you deepen your own questions because I'm not going to play the game of you ask questions and I'm the expert with the answers. And she never. She says she never meets people where they're at. But this always. is this is what non hierarchy is about. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and it's so not what's happening in the world right now. It's all about hierarchy and having the expert opinion posed and all that. Yeah, right. I'm still struck by how radical Carol is. Far out. Resourcing, reorientating the person back to their own internal resources. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, and um, to I love the relation to the word source. You know, which to me is like that generates great questions. Is like a lot of the questions I'm asking is where where is this process sourced? Where is this idea sourced? Where is this metaphor sourced? What's the source? And so often the source is the mechanical worldview. And then the question, the next question is, what would it mean if this process or perspective or question or metaphor was sourced in the world of life? And suddenly you're you're on you're off on the journey of your lifetime. Two two questions in, you know. Absolutely incredible. And I, I just realised the other day the connection to the word sorcerer. You know, magician. A magician is a sorcerer. Yeah. Which means they're able to source things that appear miraculous to others because they have the whatever the internal external technologies or processes so they're able, they're, able, they're able to source um, kind of uncommon things that appear magical to others and I sense that that is what you're talking about when you say you feel into there's just this energetic feel that there's something there and you know you don't know what it is yeah but that's what you're leaning into more yeah and that becomes that becomes the source that's of where I head rather than Oh, it's a, it's sort of like it's sort of like this. So I'll just go with that pre-existing solution, or you know, I'll just snap snap to the grid of what's already out there, as opposed to no, I'll I'll trust there's something here unique for me, and it's my work to listen to it, and just gradually, it's almost like gradually separate the signal and the noise, and just turn get the, the volume up enough to know where to turn next, and and then um, like part one of Carol's frameworks is about. Um, understanding your what your work is to do and so in, in this case I'm talking about what one aspect of the process I find myself engaging in and then you can say well, what's the value of that what's the purpose of that and where does that lead and um, so I'll be able to get some clarity about that as well and a, and a big part of it you didn't actually ask you didn't ask this but I'm <laughs> for some reason I'm saying it yeah. a big part of where it leads me is to um, later on documenting that process and sharing it with others where I've realized more and more over time it's not about the particular thing like here's, here's one way of um, if you're a permaculture designer here's a way of shifting from being a consultant or a expert or even a facilitator and, or a designer to a educational resource or a developmental resource um, and yet it's not it's not it's it's not about saying oh well, well instead of following this process from this book will follow or do what Dan said it's really inviting people into the same process for themselves of, of resourcing you know, of, of sourcing their own truth and yeah and I mean that sounds like a really challenging thing to try and document yeah because it's impossible intrinsically to doesn't want to be documented yeah and you can't photograph um, process right so you, Instagram is not the outlet for any of this work you know you, you, that, that's that's a, ma a massive struggle is you can take a photo of the outcome of a process yeah 
and we we very we're very focused towards the thing and so we're very outcome focused and the process that generated the thing is invisible to us it's in the background and yet 100% of what gives the outcome or the thing the qualities it has is the is the quality of the process that generated it below it and how, how what medium will you use are, are you thinking of writing are you thinking of oh, well, I'm trying everything really yeah. yeah podcasting writing I one one thing that's been really cool is running courses which in face-to-face in-person um, ex- educational experiences are the best because you can take people to properties yeah. and they can and I, 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 I know of properties some of which I had nothing to do with the creation of but that have life to the point where people will, will walk into the courtyard and fall to their knees and start to weep they're just the process was so alive that the aliveness of this place is in the tensionlessness because an alive process dissolves or resolves tensions every step of the way is just so unfamiliar that it, it like takes people into a liquid state simply by walking into the door you know yeah. and, and no amount of reading or podcasting or listening or talking can convey that mm. and at that moment it's like we don't need to talk about whether we're in a cage whether there's a door like let's talk about what's on the other side of the door which is the conversation i'm interested in and so those are the single most powerful thing not to mention working with people over months and years um to support them on that journey i'm doing online courses as well which you know have have their place and can contribute it's a multifaceted approach yeah that might be the best way to do it yeah no limits. Yeah, well, it's it's I'm, one of Carol's frameworks comes to mind, which is there's all, she she encourages you to, to learn to go beneath the surface of things and to think and see in levels. And one of probably thousands of frameworks starts with waste. The idea that we can we can just throw our energy away, you know, because in, in this what I'm talking about could become an example that oh I'll do a bit of podcasting, I'll do a bit of writing, I'll just I'll do a bit of everything and put five dollars on every horse and hopefully one of them will win sort of thing which can waste a lot of life force and then you can move up from there to um, saying well this seems to work so i'll scale it i'll I'll ramp it up Um, and that's very common that language of scaling and yet the idea of scaling is inseparable from the idea of genericizing because the 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 more you scale something up the more the more context it can be applied to, the more generic it is. So it loses, loses its uniqueness and its essence. And then from there, we move to prioritize or leverage. <laughs> it makes me laugh because like leverage, you hear that a lot. And it's it's 100% mechanical. You know, it's a mechanical idea. And I, I will use a lever in a fulcrum to try and have the... So I'll, literally, I'll have a mechanical... I'll use a machine to try and, you know, take the world towards life, which is like doesn't work like that. And then above that is the idea of node, of working nodally, of finding the nodes in a living system and then focusing um, life force into the nodes, which can transform the system in ways that are totally out of proportion to the amount of energy um, that you, you, you go on with. A node. I've yeah, the n- power of the node, which comes from knot. From a knot. Where are the knots, you know, the knots of life force and energy? So could this property be a node? Is it? Yeah, well, the, the, the property, 
would have the potential of being a node or, or, or having a nodal contribution to a larger system, okay. depending on what happened here. You know, let's say that this property, well, in, this has happened in the past to some extent, but let's say it became a, um, a place where regular gatherings were held that supported people to wake up and step through the door and, and so on. And then they went out into their different mm -hmm. contexts and affected enormous change, you know, over time. And that that would be a nodal out? impact. Okay, a nodal, okay. Which, looking back, there's been a tiny bit of that, a very modest example. Like, one, one way to think, one example is that can help people grasp it. It's quite, it's quite deep, I'm, re I'm realising that way Carol construes it. Um, but one example I think of is when they reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone Park in the States. Oh my goodness, I yeah. heard about that a few years ago. And it stuck with me. Yeah, it's an example of a. I mean, it takes a bit of effort to introduce wolves, but the impact they had on the health and regeneration of the whole ecology, including the water quality and vegetation and yeah. the, the numbers of all the other animals and all that, yeah. was was enormous. And so that was that was that would, to me, be an example of a nodal intervention or nodal so, shift. Yeah, is it like finding something that really works, something that is missing, like a really potent injection of something? No, I don't. I don't. Shift? I don't think it's about introducing any new material. It's more about supporting a place where energies are stuck or latent, okay, or blocked. You yeah. know, I mean, another another example. It's not is acupuncture. Yeah, it, well, it's <laughs> it's really how, like all these examples are. They add some value, but you also don't want to take them all the way. But, but is it a good example, right? Because yeah. a good acupuncturist will find a node, an energy node in the body, yeah. and then come in with the needle for the right time, the right angle, the right pressure, the right energy, etc. Turn it in the right way. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea there is that it, it will open up blocked energy flows in a way that supports the health of the whole system. Yeah. And so what does it mean to do that in different contexts and different systems in the realm of permaculture? What, you know, what, what are the nodes... In permaculture, what are the what are the nodes in the in the hospital system? And if, if I can learn to see those, then there's the potential of having an enormous impact on something with a relatively tiny amount of effort. Yeah. Wow. I'd never thought of the hospital system as needing attention. I tend to ignore it. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, modern hospitals are a very clean manifestation of a mechanical worldview. They effectively are machines. Oh, yeah, my God, completely. Which is so ironic, right? Because to me, machines and living organisms are very every different thing. So the place you take yourself as a living organism to yeah. heal is into, literally into a big shiny white machine. Yeah, it seems really childish and stupid, actually. To expect... <laughs> I don't know, to treat bodies as robots. As... Mm. Yeah, it seems childish and stupid to me, and yet it's the trajectory of the planet. Part of the research I'm doing for my writing at the moment is looking into how 
people literally have a lot of power in terms of uh, enormous wealth and the ability to fund and shift things in the world, like Bezos and Musk and Gates and so on. They are, seems clear to me, are so deeply entrenched in a mechanical worldview that they see all the problems facing humanity as engineering problems that we can fix with machines. Like literally, they're looking at making colonies on other planets once we trash Earth, which which is, those colonies are machines and we'll use machines to get there, and they're looking at solving climate change with giant machines. Did I've recently come across the um, analogy of it being a teenage boy culture that we've Yeah, yeah, with their, um, with their car, you know, the, the souped-up cars doing burnouts in the main street. Yeah, really ego-driven and numb to the wider picture and blinkered thinking and... And probably often uh, I like, would like to assume genuinely concerned and, and well-meaning, and yet if you live in a mechanical worldview, then your attempts to contribute to positive change will be mechanical. And the, the fundament, a fundamental truth here that I've been reflecting on a lot lately is that any simple standardised mechanical solution to a complex living problem will have unintended negative consequences. And because we're so steeped in a mechanical approach, each of those unintended consequences will then try and solve as another mechanical problem, which means we have a proliferation of unintended negative consequences that are literally tearing the planet and humanity apart. And because we are unconsciously wedded to that worldview and stuck in the cage, we just double down, you know? It's just like we just need more, we need to go harder and faster and at more scale on the same shit that is destroying everything. Mm. So the way to, to try and deal with um, self-termination is to terminate ourselves faster. Seems really crazy, doesn't it? That's what I see happening. Yeah, it does seem crazy. It doesn't seem to... But well, it does make sense to me when I, when I bring in that worldview aspect, you know, when... We've effectively become machines in a, in a sleep, you know, sleeping machines. And so that means that work of um, realizing that and discussing it and gradually shifting it is, it's, it's really, I don't know if there's another way if we're going to get out of the ruts. And we may, we may well not, right? And yet, um, what the hell are you? You know, you've got to find something to... At least it's fun trying. To get it, yeah. And it is <laughs> really exciting to feel those things that you don't quite know what it is, but you're like, I think there's something here. I think that's a really exciting way to live life. Yeah, 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 yeah. To yeah, be, and, to, and to learn to trust those more. Yeah, and I feel like life rushes up through my body when I'm in that space. It's like, yeah, I don't yeah. know what this is, but there's something... Yeah, I, 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 there's a quote I heard somewhere... That a life fully lived is a continuous freefall into the unknown. <laughs> so I really like, and 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 how far, obvious that is, but how foreign it's become. We we want to know. We want to see really clearly what what the next three steps are. Yeah. There's a, there's another one I like about from a can't remember a Chinese politician or someone a philosopher. We cross the river by feeling the stones. 
you know, like you feel full with your foot, you find a stone, it's underwater, and is it firm enough to stand on? No, find one, and, and then you shift your weight. And you can't see. You can't see just, the next one. Yeah. And, it's, and, and if you were trying to focus on the next one, you would probably slip and fall. Yeah. You just get to the next one, and then you feel full from there, and sometimes you back up, and, you know, that's that's the closer, rather than we need a 20 or 50 or 100-year master plan where we predetermine the outcomes. Because by doing that, you've, you've killed them before you started. Oh my god. I feel like my mind... I feel like my mind... You've put my mind into a liquid state <laughs> just listening to you talk. Oh, it's lovely to be able to pay it forward. Pay, you know, pay some of Carol's medicine forward. <laughs> yeah. Because that, you know, and Alexander and others have had that impact on me. I've spent a lot of time in intellectual liquid states. Yeah. Which is a good thing. Healthy. Yeah. Was there anything that would be, um, you know, helpful in terms of navigating this liquidity? Or, or do you want to share more about what it feels like? Or? Hearing about it being a good thing to go through is helpful. Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, what I'm really fascinated and interested by is what does it mean to liquefy the cage? Yeah. Which we all carry around inside ourselves, and until that's liquefied, it's it's well, it's, it's there. Yeah, to me it's like real learning happens. Completely. I guess it's I guess it's mental liquid state, that real deep learning. Because it's sort of like you know the earthquakes in Christchurch, that liquefaction all came up from the streets when it shook. Yeah. To me, that's what a liquid state is. It's like this shifting of the foundations and causing complete change in the terrain. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And then when the water drains away, there's this new form. Yeah. Whereas I think we're taught that learning is about stepping up a ladder or something. I've described permaculture as in the past as, as outcome focused. You know, we want to get to toward a ecologically aligned culture, and in doing so, it reaches and grabs a ladder, a process ladder. But it turns out that the ladder is in the shape of a U. And so you're climbing up this ladder, looking at this beautiful kind of doorway or window you want to get through. And you're climbing so eagerly, but at some point you actually turn around. And so you're moving further and further away from the window. You're still looking at it and trying to get there, but your, your process is taking you further and further away, which is the mechanical process. And in fact, like even a ladder, right? It's not like a ladder, it's not like a, a manufactured thing that has uniform 
rungs the same diameter, the same distance. You know, it's not like that. It's not how life works. It's more like they cross the stepping stones across the river. Mm -hmm.